We joined the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey last week. Pastor Chad told us how Paul came to the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Paul ministered there in word and deed. There were healings and exorcisms, and he brought people out of occult practices. And Luke tells us that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in Ephesus. So then we come to Acts 19.23, and Luke tells us, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is the way of life and worship that Jesus embodied and preached. And this way is now embodied in his church. And we've seen throughout our sermons in Acts, the way of Christ is disturbing. The gospel, which I define as the announcement that Jesus is king and Lord over all, that gospel necessarily causes disturbance in all competing kingdoms. In Acts, we've seen that the gospel disturbed the man-made traditions of Judaism. In Acts, we have seen that the gospel disturbed the idol worship of Athens. And today, Luke tells us about another disturbance this one in Ephesus. So as we come to the word this morning, let us ask God to light our way. Heavenly Father, here in your word, we find what our hearts long for. We find all that is worthy of our worship and our devotion. For in your word, we find you. And we find you in your beloved son, Jesus. Reveal yourself to us this morning that we might love you more deeply. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're in Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, who's being disturbed by the way of Jesus? Verse 24 tells us of a man named Demetrius. He's a silversmith in Ephesus. He made silver shrines of Artemis and bought no little business to the craftsmen, we are told. Now, a little background here. Artemis was the primary deity in Ephesus. She was associated with the moon, with hunting and animals, and with fertility, both human and agricultural. Ephesus was home to a great temple dedicated to Artemis, and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So I want to show you an artist's reproduction of what this temple probably looked like, and there's a cutaway uh, so you can see inside it. That, it wasn't really like that. You get a lot of rain in there. Uh, but that way you can see inside of it, and you can see there's an enormous statue of Artemis at the back. And you see on the ground here around the temple the people, and that, that gives you a little bit of the scope of the massive size of this structure and why it was considered a wonder of the ancient world. And perhaps among those people out there in the courtyard is a man named Demetrius. And Demetrius is in the souvenir business. He makes miniature versions of this temple, small silver shrines, sort of like when you visit the Statue of Liberty and they have those tiny replicas that you can buy. Well, thanks to Demetrius, pilgrims to this temple could purchase a tiny silver temple so they could continue to worship Artemis from the comfort of their own home. And I'm sure he charged only a modest sum for these miniature wonders. And so Luke tells us that Demetrius is disturbed by Paul's preaching because Paul comes into Ephesus saying things like, an idol has no real existence. He says things like, there is no God but one. 
and he ain't Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul claims that the true God does not live in temples made by man, either massive stone temples or tiny silver ones. So Demetrius is no dummy. He knows that if people actually listen to this Paul character, he's going to be out of a job real quick. And so we're done with that slide. Thanks, guys. So now in his vocation, Demetrius provides an interesting contrast with Paul. We learned in Acts 18 that Paul was a tent maker by trade, and Pastor Chad pointed this out. The building of tents is an important theme throughout the scriptures. God dwelt in the midst of Israel in a great tent called the tabernacle. That was eventually rebuilt with greater glory in the temple. Some of the most important people in scripture were called by God to build these houses. Think of Moses and David and Solomon. And Luke wants us to connect this to Paul. Yes, in his vocation, he is literally making tents, but in his ministry, he is symbolically building up the new house of God, the new tabernacle, the new temple, the body of Christ, the Christian church. So like Demetrius the silversmith, Paul is a builder of temples. Demetrius builds tiny temples, cheap knockoffs of a greater temple, and according to the Bible, even that temple is in truth an empty house for a false god. Paul, on the other hand, is building a living temple by the power of the Spirit. A temple that spans the known world, which is the house of the living God and the body of Jesus Christ. So what we have here in Acts 19 is actually a conflict between two temple builders. And Demetrius doesn't seem terribly confident that his little temples will win out. Now in a minute, I'm going to read Demetrius' speech to you. But before we do that, I want to point something out. Today, we're going to see that Artemis is not the only idol present in Ephesus. There are less obvious idols hiding in the hearts of men. And so I want us to try to discern what are the idols underneath the idol, the idols behind the idol. Are these men really concerned with the glory of their goddess? Or are there deeper things to which they have devoted their hearts? So let's look at verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Okay, so, so what did you discern in that speech? Now there was some very pious-sounding talk in there about Artemis being deposed from her magnificence. But don't you get the feeling that there are other idols pulling more strongly at Demetrius's heart? 
Look at his opening. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. He's smart, right? How do you get the attention of a room full of businessmen? Threaten their profits. So what's the idol here? It's obvious, isn't it? It's money or wealth. Demetrius and these men worship wealth. Then later, Demetrius says, this trade of ours will come into disrepute. Disrepute means people will realize our product is a ripoff and they won't respect us like they do now. So what's the idol here? It's the idol of reputation, the favor of men, the respect of men. And there's at least one more, which I think Demetrius hits on in verse 27, when he points out that all of Asia and the world worship Artemis of the Ephesians. Not just Artemis in general, but the version of Artemis we worship in Ephesus. You see, the Ephesians' national identity was wrapped up in this goddess and her glorious temple. It was their claim to fame. It's what drew the nations to them. It's what made the Ephesians special, what made them better than other people. So I named this idol national identity. And I don't mean a healthy patriotism here. I don't mean a healthy love of neighbor and of gratitude for the place God has planted you. What I'm talking about is an arrogant pride that causes you to believe that people from other cities or other countries are less than you, that they're not as worthy as you. And so I see these three deeper idols at work here, wealth, reputation, national identity. These are the things that they believe Artemis brings to them, or at least that her temple brings to them. But let's take all of this even one level deeper. I mean, no one worships money for money's sake, right? It's not that we think a crumpled dollar bill is particularly beautiful or pleasant to touch or smells nice or something like that. We worship money because of the power and the control and the comfort that it promises, don't we? The same with reputation. We cherish it because it makes us feel good about ourselves. It makes us feel secure. And the same with our national identity. Being Ephesians gave these people the feeling that they were better than people from other places. So now we've uncovered the idols of the heart. The things to which these men are truly devoted. They are control. They are security. They are pride. This is what they really worship. Artemis is simply an outward symbol to them for these deeper idols of the heart. Now, in our day, we don't have to worry about this stuff because we don't have temples of Artemis and we don't have silver shrines in our houses, right? But are we ever tempted to make an idol out of wealth? or out of our reputation or approval, or out of our national identity? Are we ever attempted to pursue these things for the sense of control and security and pride that they seem to promise? Now let's clarify something. All of these things are good things, right? In their proper place, they are good. You can do a lot of good for your neighbor if you have wealth. If you live with integrity, loving your neighbor, you will have a good reputation. 
And it is good to enjoy and be thankful for the city or the state or the nation where God has put you and to serve your neighbors in that place. But are we ever tempted to make these good things into God things? Are we ever tempted to look to these idols for our ultimate security, our ultimate hope, even for our salvation? Do we sometimes look to these things for that which only God can give? If so, then they have become idols. Now here's a way to discern when you've made a good thing into a God thing. Here's a way to tell that you've turned something into an idol. We see the test right here in our passage. When are the true idols of the Ephesians revealed? When those idols are threatened. When the Ephesians believe they're going to lose their wealth and their reputation and their national identity, that's when we realize those things have become idols in the hearts of these people. I mean, isn't that how Demetrius stirs everyone to action? He says, if you let this Paul guy continue to preach these things, think about what we will lose. We'll lose our wealth, our reputation, our national pride. We will lose all the comfort Security and affection, those things promise. And when faced with this threat, how do the Ephesians react? Two things. First, they get angry. They get angry. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged. Anger is the usual response when our idols are threatened. Second, The Ephesians tried to cling to that idol even harder and more desperately than before because you have this feeling that you have to protect and preserve the idol at all costs so that you don't lose what it promises. So in this case, there's this spontaneous worship service that erupts. They cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Suddenly, everyone is the most devoted Artemis worshiper ever. So how do you know if something has become an idol? See how you react when it is threatened. See how you behave when you think you're going to lose it. Do you get angry? Do you try to protect and preserve that idol at all costs? If money is the idol and it's threatened, the government decides to take it or the church asks for it or some unexpected expense pops up, we get angry. And we start to get greedy, start pinching every penny, trying to desperately hold on to as much as we can. If reputation is the idol and it is threatened, someone makes fun of us or they don't treat us with the respect we think we deserve, we get angry. And we try to grasp at respect by attacking others, by taking them down a peg so that we can maintain our exalted position. If our national identity is threatened, someone disrespects Nebraska, probably somebody from Iowa, (laughs) right? Or someone disrespects the United States, we get angry and we're tempted to move from a healthy and appropriate patriotism towards something that is more violent and dominating, a selfish pride that makes us compromise Christian charity for God and for neighbor. So how do you discern if you've turned something or someone into an idol? 
Well, pay attention to how you respond when that thing or that relationship is threatened. You see, this is why the gospel disturbs our idolatry. Because the gospel is telling us that the only thing that can never be threatened, the only thing you can never lose, is the love of Jesus. What does Paul himself say in Romans 8? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All those things that Paul just named there, those are things that can take away our idols. They are things that can destroy our idols. But Paul says none of them can touch the love that Jesus has for you. And so that's why the gospel says idols are worthless. Jesus is the only God worthy of our devotion. And so what happens if we don't allow the gospel to come in, if we don't allow Jesus to come in and crush our idols and tear us away from them? If we don't, then those idols will drive us mad. They will not bring us the comfort and safety they promise. They will bring only chaos and rage. Look at our passage, verse 29. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rush together into the theater. Now, I have a slide with a reconstruction of this theater as well. Um, and you can see on the left is kind of the recreation of what they think it looked like. And then on the right is what it looks like today. So you could go visit it if you wanted to. Hopefully there's not a riot when you're there. Um, it could seat about, it's a big amphitheater. It could seat about 25,000 people. They used it for plays and dramatic performances, but also for social and political meetings and demonstrations. So that's where we are, verse 29. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So you can imagine the scene here. This is a mob. There's no reasoning. There's no understanding. There's no listening there is no patience. There is simply this incessant drone, this chant of great is Artemis, great is Artemis, echoing back and forth, amplified by the walls of this theater, as if by mere volume and repetition, this cry can silence and subdue all who would oppose. Okay, we're done with that slide too. Thanks, guys. Now, we can't help but think uh, of some of the crowds that we've seen maybe on the news in recent years. We can't help but think of the groupthink and mob mentality that we see on social media. This is nothing new, right? We see it all the time. People yelling over each other instead of listening to each other. And we see here that Christ is again reliving his life in the life of his church, as is the theme of the book of Acts. 
Because in Jerusalem, we know that Jesus faced a mob who was blinded by anger. Why were they angry? Because Jesus had threatened their idols of wealth and of reputation and of national identity. But their mantra was, crucify him, crucify him. So now Jesus' disciples find themselves in a similar situation. Jesus is reliving his life in the life of his church. And Luke also wants us to connect this gathering in the theater with a much earlier biblical event, the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11, which was read for you earlier this morning. For here in Acts, just as at Babel, we have men who seek a name for themselves by their great building, don't we? It's a man-made temple. And here in Ephesus, just as at Babel, the, the true God has come to crush their idolatry. And here, just as there, he does so by confusing them. They cannot understand one another. In fact, Luke includes the Greek word for confusion twice in this story, and he does that on purpose. In the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which his readers were familiar with, that includes that same Greek word for confusion exactly twice in the story of the Tower of Babel. And so I think Luke wants us to see this riot in Ephesus as a new Tower of Babel, displaying those same idols of the heart that have plagued humanity since the beginning. God has to confuse and to confound. He has to disturb our idolatry so that he can get us back on the way that he has, des uh, that he has designed for us. So idolatry, seeking wealth, and reputation and identity in things other than God will always breed confusion. It will never bring peace or unity or communion. It is a blind devotion to the false God and therefore unthinking, unfeeling oppression of those who would threaten this idol. Well, finally, someone interjects some reason into the mob, the town clerk, kind of like the mayor of the city, verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Apparently, they had a meteor that they thought had been sent to them by Artemis or that kind of looked like her. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. So it's like he's saying, guys, we have this huge temple and this huge idol, and the whole world knows about this. One tent-making Jew with crazy ideas is not a threat to us. But I want you to notice, what is this that finally pacifies the mob? It's not that they've been corrected or changed or repented. It's that the clerk is able to convince them that their idols are not really under threat, right? When they thought they would lose their idols, everybody lost their minds. But now, once they're assured your idols are safe and secure, now they return to their senses and their anger is appeased. And he goes on, verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. 
Now, incidentally, that tells us something about the way that Paul treated people uh, and their culture with respect, even when he didn't agree with them, right? He was not a blasphemer. He wasn't sacrilegious. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And he's saying that because if they were charged with rioting, the Romans would come in and settle the affair, and that wasn't going to go well for anybody, right? Verse 41, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the clerk is able to calm the crowds, but I, I think as we look back on this speech now, uh, the speech of the clerk, there's some irony here. Because he thinks it's ridiculous that the gospel of Jesus could truly threaten the worship of Artemis. I mean, just look around. We have this massive temple. It impresses the whole world. We have even a meteor, which kind of looks like Artemis, that fell from the sky. In face of all this great power and glory, how can some ranting Jew from Tarsus possibly pose a threat to us? It seemed reasonable to the clerk, and apparently it convinced the mob. Little did they know that Demetrius was right to be afraid. For the gospel of Jesus Christ would go on to disturb the whole world. People would hear the good news. They would abandon idols made by human hands. They would give up their wealth and reputation and national identity for the name of Jesus. Two centuries after these events, the Goths would invade Asia Minor. They would burn that temple of Artemis down. And she would indeed be deposed from her magnificence. Nobody is worshiping Artemis in Ephesus or anywhere else anymore. But within a few decades of that event, the whole Roman Empire would bow the knee to King Jesus. And billions worship Jesus in every nation now. Yes, the gospel of King Jesus is very disturbing. No idols, no wealth, no reputation, no national identity is safe. The Father has given all authority in heaven and on earth to His Son, and therefore all devotion and worship belong to Him and to Him alone. Disturbing as that may be for the idols and for the earthly kingdoms of men, it is gloriously good news for us. Why? Because we have been loved by the King. We have come to the true temple, not some ancient ruin, not some silver souvenir, but to Jesus Christ, the living house of God, and to his church in which he dwells by the power of his spirit. Our faith does not depend on a rock that fell from the sky. We rest our hope on Christ, the true rock sent from heaven. Our hope is not in some lifeless stone statue. We worship the risen Jesus, God incarnate in human flesh. Jesus is the living, breathing, moving image of the invisible God. And in Jesus, we are given all those things which our idols promised, but which they could not really give. We can abandon the idol of wealth, 
For in Christ we have been given the immeasurable riches of God's grace. We can abandon the idol of reputation, for in Christ our God looks upon us with favor no matter what the world thinks. We can abandon the idol of national arrogance, for Christ has secured for us a heavenly citizenship in a kingdom that will never pass away. Indeed, all security, all comfort, all hope are only found in Christ. And he freely gives all of this to us by giving himself to us. He who will never be deposed from his magnificence. He whom all heaven and earth worship. Therefore, we do not mindlessly shout. We joyfully sing, Great is Jesus Christ, Lord of all, the Savior of the world. To him be all blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let us pray. True God, we confess that along with all humanity, we have often worshipped and given ourselves to false idols. We have sought security and comfort and power and approval in a thousand other things. We have allowed these idols to steal the devotion that rightly belongs to you. So we give you thanks that, we sent, that you sent your true image, our Savior Jesus, to free us from the bondage of idolatry and bestow upon us all your gracious gifts. Give us strength to continue to crush our idols and to tell the world of the freedom that only Christ brings. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.